guest today is Rebecca Burton from the Linklaters Law Firm, where our dear friend and debt guru, Lachlan Byrne, used to work. So we are always excited to have a friend from Linklaters come talk to us because Lachlan has, over the years, taught us everything we know about debt, he along with uh, Lee Bukite and Yanis Manuelides. So this this is this is very exciting that we have Rebecca coming to talk to us. Now, the story that we are going to ask Rebecca about is a saga that has gone on for a long time, but has gotten little to no attention in the financial press. And this is the saga of the Cuban debts. Most people in the modern financial markets, at least the sovereign debt markets, probably don't even know that there is any Cuban sovereign debt out there. Uh, but Cuba used to borrow, and Cuba borrowed quite a bit at one time. We, we do historical work, so we've come across old Cuban sovereign bonds. And after the Cuban Revolution, like the Soviet Union and Communist China, Cuba stopped paying a lot of its debts. Now, in recent years, particularly with the Obama administration, Cuba started re-entering the international financial community, of course, that all took a little bit of a U-turn with the Trump administration, and now I'm not really sure where it is. But one of the spillover effects of Cuba beginning to return to the international financial community, or at least looking like it would return, was that it produced a great deal of excitement among those who thought this is time to start suing on those old unpaid Cuban debts. But of course, they're old debts. They're in old contract terms. And so litigation is not that easy. And that really brings us to the story that we're hoping to ask Rebecca about. And of course, Rebecca can correct me, but Rebecca is a litigator at Linklaters who has written about this and talked about this story in much more sophisticated fora. That's where we heard about it. But we're hoping that she can tell us a simplified version of the story. And Mark and I promise to ask lots of really basic, stupid questions uh, to elucidate the story more clearly. We're going to pretend that we're asking stupid questions just to make it clearer for our students. But really, uh, from my part, those are stupid, stupid questions that I don't actually know the answer to. So, Rebecca, welcome <laughs> to our podcast. We're so thrilled to have you. Thank and you. Thank you. And, and I know you're super busy uh, these days. And of course, you have a real job. Uh, and this, this kind of litigation is probably just one of the many, many, many things uh, that you're doing. But I'm wondering if you could just give us a basic synopsis of the story and why it's so fun and exciting. 
Sure. No, well, thanks so much for having me on. Thrilled to be here. Um, and yes, I will absolutely do my best to make sure I keep this um, fun and simple. Um, perhaps some people might say that's impossible for litigators. So do do stop me if you need to unpack anything. Um, and as you say, I mean, this case is it really is a story because the facts that we'll talk about, you know, really originate back in the 70s and the 80s when the debt um, under discussions sort of came into being. So it's a really long story. Um, and we litigators often find ourselves, you know, really trying to then uncover the facts, what has happened, and, you know, judges have to do that, and then they make their, their findings. Um, so yes, I find this case really, really interesting. Um, I will, as I sort of would say, it, it's a pretty complex case. So for anyone who's then interested, you know, there is a judgment available that you can go away and read at your leisure if you'd like to. Um, but perhaps should I just kick off, I mean, in terms of the original debt and, and what sort of that, you know, that is the, the heart of the matter. Yeah, and please, so please. So if you could start. just give us the basics of what the claims were that were being litigated and who the claimants were in that, who was litigating this and what were they trying to get that? And then, then we can go into the details. Sure. So the case concerns monies that were effectively part of a much larger pool of funds that Cuba had borrowed uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, those funds had been borrowed from various countries. Uh, this case just concerns two loans in particular. Uh, and those had originally been granted to so the original lenders um, were two banks known as Credit Leones, which I'll call CL, uh, and another bank called Instituto Banco Italiano, so IBI. Uh, so they were the two lenders under these agreements. It was the same borrower under both, and that was the Banco Nacional de Cuba, so BNC. So there were those two separate loans, and then the Republic of Cuba had agreed to guarantee one of those, the IBI loan. And so that under the original framework, um, it might be envisaged that those two original banks might need to sue on this debt. And when they structured that debt, they had in their contracts sort of clauses that would assist the lenders if they ever needed to sue on the debt. Um, and ultimately, those protections are going to be useful to anyone that, that owns the debt. So as it gets assigned over time, which we'll come on to, those same provisions are meant to be there for the person who has the interest in the debt so that they know, okay, if I'm going to sue on this debt now, I've got certain benefits in the contract that's going to make that easier for me. And so the three clauses in particular that are quite helpful in that regard are the following. Firstly, under the contracts, all the parties agreed to submit to the jurisdiction of the English courts. That's why I'm here today as an English litigator, because ultimately this case was heard in England. So that was the first one. Um, secondly, the borrower uh, and also Cuba for the second agreement had agreed to waive any kind of arguments around sovereign immunity that might otherwise come up uh, and prevent the English court from exercising its jurisdiction in a case. Um, and finally, the lenders were also um, allowed to commence proceedings and um, by serving sort of the legal documents on the borrower in a way that was easier under the contract than might otherwise have been the case. Uh, and, you know, that's a really important thing we see all the time. You need to be able to start your litigation by serving the papers 
So those were the kind of protections um, that were under those agreements. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the debts have been assigned several times. So a whole chain of assignments, which I think we would say is, is relatively common. We see that in respect of sovereign debt um, elsewhere as well. Rebecca, can I interject for just a second? So, um, it, of course, the case winds up being about the validity of those assignments. And so um, I assume it's the case that the underlying loan contracts uh, forbade assignment. Uh, so I, I'm sort of puzzled because I would have a, I would have assumed, not knowing a whole lot about uh, about lending at the time, I would have assumed it was kind of understood that loans might change hands. And so can you explain what the contracts say about that? And if there's a prohibition on assignment, or why it's there? Yeah, absolutely. So the contracts very much did envisage that assignment might happen. Um, so there wasn't a blanket restriction on assignment, definitely not. Um, but what there was, uh, were some prohibitions that might be engaged depending on who the debt was being assigned to. And so um, effectively, if the debt was going to be assigned um, to entities other than perhaps subsidiaries or holding companies of the original lenders, if you were assigning to someone other than those, then the borrower's consent was required for the assignment. Um, there was a limit on that in the sense that the consent couldn't be unreasonably withheld. That was a term of the contract. But ultimately, you needed consent in order to affect the assignment. So, Rebecca, can you tell us what act, what happened? Although it, it seems like the facts are disputed as to what really happened with the assignments, because a long period of time has I mean, it's 50 years now, and there has got to have been long periods of time when there was very low likelihood of repayment on these debts. And presumably the entities that ended up buying these debts in the final bit of this saga are entities that were sort of distressed debt type funds. And Cuba probably didn't want them to be holding those debts and litigating them. So can, can we get a sense of like what happened and then how it came to the modern day? Sure, absolutely. Well, what I'll do is I'll go through, I think, after that debt being set up in the 70s and 80s, our story probably picks up again um, in the 2000s, so 2009. Um, but just before I sort of go through what happened over the last of 10, 15 years, um, what I would say is that, yeah, both of the debts, um, obviously originally with separate lenders, they both ended up um, with what was known at the time as Standard Bank PLC, um, which became ICBC. So they both ended up with the same person um, and up until that point, there was no issue taken as to the validity of the assignments, nothing like that. And so what really then kicked off the story um, that's at the heart of the case is a new entity coming onto the scene called CRF um, in 2009. And that was an entity that was specifically set up for the purpose of buying Cuban debt 
and specifically defaulted loans. Um, and that was very much how it was marketed to investors in, in presentations and prospectuses. Uh, and CRF explained it was doing this. And in fact, it was specifically targeting debt that was guaranteed by the Republic of Cuba. So is um, just yeah. just is CRF um, a type of hedge fund like the ones who litigated against Argentina or is it yeah. one of the more modern litigation finance entities that you know are, are bringing uh, arbitration claims against Venezuela I'm just trying to understand the modern um, landscape of who 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 brings these kinds of litigations and so on I think it's the former in this case um, and they were fairly happy to make it known that they were on the scene. Um, so although they actually didn't acquire the two debts that we're talking about straight away, and we'll come on to that, they were going around acquiring all sorts of other interests. Um, and they did in fact attempt to buy these two debts earlier than they managed to, um, but I won't linger on that. But having acquired some other interests, they were, I think, keen to make their existence known um, to Cuba and to members of the Paris Club. And they did that, I think, first in around 2013. Uh, and probably the timing there was driven by the fact that at that time, the Paris Club restructuring negotiations with Cuba were due to resume. So they were sort of very um, upfront about writing to Cuba to say, look, we have these interests. Um, and then they really took the lead um, for a group. They, they instigated their, their formation of the London Club of the private creditors of Cuban debt uh, and really took the lead in that club and wrote again to the Cuban government and also wrote to BNC as the borrower, um, really seeking to enter into discussions to settle that commercial debt. And I think at that point, as I say, it was very clear they were on the scene, but they didn't get much engagement from the Cuban government or from BNC, who I think we can take it were perhaps not um, you know, super happy that necessarily these were the individuals holding the debt. And so in, that sounds like a nice uh, place to talk about the issues that have been central in the litigation so far. So uh, as I understand it, uh, both BNC and Cuba contest the validity of the assignment to uh, this uh, particular fund. And it winds up that the assignment is valid as against BNC, or, but not against Cuba. Do I have that right? Can, can you kind of walk us through where the litigation has got to right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, perhaps before I do, I will spend a tiny bit of time explaining um, the quite painful process that CRF went through to get hold of the debt that is then subject. Oh yes, to the please. There, and there's a bunch um, of corruption yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that here, right? I think I think it's worth mentioning because I think bearing all of that in mind, sort of the complexity around doing the deal to to acquire the debt in the first place, and then having to deal with the legal issues that are that are at the heart of the case, they're really connected. So I'll mention those first, but then absolutely we can come on to um, kind of what the issues were. So um, I mentioned the CRF had already attempted in 2014 to get um, this debt and had struggled at that time, had been asked to provide all sorts of documents. It was, it was very complicated and ultimately they aborted that attempt. Um, but what they decided to do in 2019 was have another go. Uh, they needed to write to their own shareholders uh, in order to extend the investment period so they could do that as part of their strategy. 
Um, and again, they embarked on this incredibly complex process of understanding what documents they were going to need to get in addition to that consent we should we should mention that again you know they needed consent but there were also lots of other requirements um, there was a, a whole story about even how do you get documents to Cuba DHL was used that's one of our um, courier companies here but that didn't work the Department of Trade was consulted whether they could help get the documents over and ultimately um, an individual who worked for CRF personally traveled to Cuba, I think sort of did a detour to Cuba whilst on holiday uh, nearby and, and physically gave the documents to CRF's lawyers in Cuba. Those documents then had to go through a whole legal process. Uh, I won't go into sort of all the details of that now, but, but ultimately after sort of many, many months, it was all cleared, everything was signed off. CRF then said, great, can you now confirm to us, please, that you know the consent has been provided and we are the owner. Uh, and finally, in November 2019, uh, an employee of, of BNC, the borrower, wrote back and said, yes, you are. Um, having, I should just mention, in June of that year, another employee had, had also given consent uh, in principle to the assignment. Um, and really, that's at the heart then of the litigation um, that commenced. So I should explain that CRF having acquired the debt, then wanted to sue on it and to recover that debt. Uh, but they can haven't we, even we go got back? as far as that yet, in fact, because this case is about something else. <laughs> can we go back for just a second to, to just fill in some details about who those two employees were who signed off on the, on the debt? Sure. Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning their names because they'll come up again. So, um, or at Ms. least Marty, what positions they held. Yeah, uh, I'm, I will confess I don't know their precise titles off the top of my head, but Ms. Marty um, was the woman who initially gave the um, sort of consent for the assignment. I can definitely follow up for you and let you know uh, their exact titles. And then Mr. Lozano um, was the individual who later on confirmed, yes, this is all done. Um, neither was particularly senior from memory, but I will check and come back to you on that one. Yeah, I, I was just sort of, they, they both work for BNC and it sounds like Correct. they're mid-level, not especially senior folks. Yes, exactly. I mean, the BNC had its own handbook, um, which set up rules about what different employees could do. Ultimately, all of that being sort of powers delegated from the president of the BNC, but it was not the president of the BNC who was involved in the case. Thanks. So is, was the claim then just to, to make sure I'm following <laughs> such a and, and the fun part hasn't even started. So is the claim then that these employees were did not have the authority or the capacity uh, to agree to this assignment? Or is it that they did it improperly, they were uh, bribed or some, something else, some other shenanigans happened or, uh, because ultimately uh, Cuba doesn't want, doesn't want the litigation to proceed. And so it says assignment was improper. Is that correct? Uh, so actually more saying that the assignment was not effective. Um, so this case was actually a jurisdiction challenge um, that's what we would call it. And so it effectively, CRF had tried to claim the debt, 
And what BNC were doing in response to that was saying, no, you can't do that. You just you don't have any right to do that. So the English court has no jurisdiction to make an order against us to pay you that debt because that debt was not properly, you know, not validly assigned to you. Um, and then that was the overarching decision that had to be decided in this case. And as part of that, some of those issues you've just mentioned around um, authority and capacity had to be considered to reach the answer as to the question, was this debt? or was this debt being validly assigned to CRF in the first place? And you're very right that the certain of the conduct um, of the employees was, was part of that. And we can come on to that when we look at the sort of three issues the court had to decide. Um, I would mention that, yes, there was at one point um, allegations of bribery um, involved with, with Mr. Lozano. Um, and actually, at the time that the claims were being brought, um, Mr. Lozano was sort of found guilty of, of improper um, conduct and sentenced to 13 years in prison. But I would mention that all allegations of bribery that then were later raised in the English case as part of the arguments around authority were completely withdrawn. Um, and, and the judge um, noted that in her judgment and also said that actually based on the evidence she had seen, many parts of this case was, was inconsistent with bribery. Um, so I probably won't address that further when in, with, in our conversation because ultimately the bribery aspect of it did not form part of the English claim or any of the decisions made in that, in that claim. I don't know if that leaves us with perhaps, yeah, talking about, so what were the questions the court had to think about in deciding whether assignment had been valid? Is that a good place yeah, to go on to? Yeah, I, I think so. The, I think we can get those, the three big questions that the court does have to wrestle with. Uh, it, it seems like we're, we're at the point where we should, we should talk about those. So that, that would, and then after that, I, I want to ask you about uh, the implications of this for you know the broader market and i i remember when i heard you talk about this before those seemed quite significant especially the complication of uh, domestic legislation and an uh, english court or a u.s court having to delve into those but maybe maybe we can go on to the the main the main the main event yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the main event, as it were, was this question, have these assignments been validly assigned? And that really came down to one thing, um, but with some sub questions. But the real question was, well, was valid prior consent given? Because that was the main sort of defense raised uh, by the borrower when saying, no, no, you can't bring this claim, you don't have rights to this debt consent was never given for the assignment because as we mentioned earlier there is a contractual prohibition in the agreements um, that you must get consent to ensure a valid assignment um, so court had to think about that they then also though had to think about well if consent kind of as a matter of form was given did the borrower have capacity to give that consent at all um, both for itself but also for Cuba as the guarantor so they had to think about that and we'll come on to that and they also then had to think about okay well even if you had the capacity like the ability to do that were the relevant employees authorized to give that consent at the time that they did so those were the three things that the judge thought about 
and I'll just very briefly kind of recap what the findings were on each of those. So as for prior consent, the judge found yes on the facts that had happened and that came down to an email um, sent in June by Ms Marty uh, so prior to the assignments taking effect so that was prior consent um, and that although that email had asked for certain documents to be provided that wasn't an issue because ultimately the documents were provided so any conditionality was was satisfied uh, and that wasn't a problem and that email when it was sent was a reply to a question also by email for consent for all three agreements so the judge said you know you gave consent in this email and you gave it in respect of all three agreements so the two loans and the guarantee for the IBI agreement so that was fairly sort of straightforward actually as a matter of, that was looking at the facts sort of the documentation and um, that she had before her had that happened and she said yes it had the two other issues so did you have capacity to give that consent? And if so, did you have authority? Um, involved a bit more about foreign law. And I should mention at this point that in the English courts, foreign law is treated as sort of evidence of fact. And so what happened is, you know, each side commissioned an expert who prepared a lengthy report going into the background of the law, what the law is. They are then cross-examined in court, and the English law judge has the, the sort of duty to then make findings as to what they think Cuban law is. So that's how it works here. I'm not sure sort of if that's super um, similar to some other jurisdictions that our listeners are familiar with, um, but that's how it works in English litigation. Um, and I should mention that the judge did note in her judgment that at times it was not entirely clear what that evidence was from the experts and that their performance under cross-examination perhaps led them sometimes to making statements that were not necessarily consistent with what they had said in their reports. So the judge had a real job on her hands of listening to all of that evidence and deciding what she was going to decide human law was. But she did that and where she came out was that BNC as the borrower had capacity to consent to assignments for itself. So the actual debt agreements consent had been given and, and there was capacity to do that. Uh, but BNC did not have capacity to consent to the assignment of the guarantee given by Cuba. And that's as a result of looking at lots of leg legislation that talked about what BNC could and couldn't do over the years. And that's what she based her finding on for capacity. Um, I'll deal very briefly then with authority. This only was relevant now in respect of the loan agreements itself, because BNC did have capacity to give consent for those. Uh, and again, the judge found that the key individuals involved, so Mr. Lozano and Ms. Marty, did have authority to act for BNC under the BNC rules that governed their conduct. There were some attempts um, by the borrower to say, no, these employees did not comply with certain formalities. Um, for example, they said that two signatures were needed on particular documents, whereas Ms. Marty's email was just sent from her. Uh, but the judge concluded, no, those arguments didn't hold up um, and, and it was all done validly. So that's where we ultimately came out was um, that the assignments of the debt agreements had been validly assigned, uh, but the, the guarantee had not. So can we um, 
this is so interesting and there's so much important uh, nuance to these cases. So I don't want to take us away from the court's holdings too quickly, but I do want to make sure that we have some time to talk about the issue that Me Too raised and that I I, um, I think he, uh, both he and I want to talk about, which is the significance this ruling might have for broader sovereign debt markets. And, you know, I, I think I do want to throw that out to you as just an open-ended question for you to help us think through. Um, but I also want to uh, maybe eventually talk about whether this is something whose significance is limited to commercial lending rather than bond markets, or if there's a, um, a reason why people who focus on bond lending should be especially interested in this too. Sure. Well, I mean, I would say this case is um, particularly when you actually read the full judgment, and I think it really comes home in the judgment, sort of how complex the issues were, both factually and legally. Um, And so what it does is I think this case is a cautionary tale for anyone involved in historical sovereign debt uh, that has been assigned, particularly many times, um, that you're, you're very possibly running a risk as to the validity of those assignments. Um, but the real reality is, I think that you know commercial investors in sovereign debt are not likely to have the time or the resources to bottom out all of these kinds of points in advance of executing their investment strategy to acquire this type of debt. Um, even if they did, they might not be able to get all the information they would need. So for example, what are the internal governance procedures of the relevant public official bodies? And they're not going to be able to necessarily get 100% comfort on how the law is going to be determined um, by an English judge many, many years later hearing expert evidence. So the case is a reminder, I think, of just the general legal risk that investors run as part of ordinary course of business when deciding to invest in this kind of debt, particularly where there are sort of these chains of assignments. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind that in addition to that causing an issue for them in terms of being able to recover the debt, there's also a disclosure issue here, because if you remember, um, CRF had told its investors that it would only invest in debt that was guaranteed by the Cuban government. So I think there's an angle there to you know, the risk around the accuracy of your disclosures if you're making statements of that kind to your investors. So Rebecca, if, if, if um, sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Were, were you going to say something more on that? No, I mean, I just was going to pick up on your other point, which was, you know, in terms of wider relevance for commercial lending and, and bonds. Yeah, please. And, and on that, I mean, I would just say the case is incredibly fact specific. Um, it will obviously have relevance for other holders of of Cuban debt potentially from this time Um, but I would say in terms of it standing as a a legal authority it's it's relevance is going to be limited to that context but that said I think it's a very good reminder for other types of um, you know lending or for example yeah if if you're selling a bond to somebody else I think it is a useful reminder still of the importance of getting your formalities right and making sure that if you're the purchaser in that context, having some sort of contractual protection, such as you know warranties from the seller, that they actually do have title to this and that they have authority, uh, so that if these problems do materialise, 
you potentially have recourse to them in any event. So just to make the connection more broadly, since we are, alas, coming to the end of this time that we have with you, but I, I... I want to make the connection and also ask you another question. So the the Cuban case and the fact that you had experts on domestic Cuban law uh, coming to give evidence in an English court and that the judge, you know, had a lot of trouble with this. All of this uh, reminds me of some of the discussions that we've had in the U.S. context, New York law context specifically, of Venezuelan debt, because there have been questions of authority raised there. And in the informal discussions, one of the questions was, oh, my God, are we going to have to have experts on Venezuelan law come and give evidence in a New York court as to whether or not uh, the debt was issued uh, properly. So not an assignment question, but question of uh, proper issuance. And a similar sort of capacity question uh, seems to have been raised in the Ukraine uh, case in the English Supreme Court recently, although I think that that was sort of quickly decided, but it it did did come up. And more broadly, we have seen in the international market, I think particularly out of London, that there has been an increase in syndicated lending to sovereigns. And this syndicated lending, of course, was big uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, around the same time as these Cuban debts uh, originated. And at least in the old syndicated loan agreements, there were generally constraints on assignments of the type that you have described. Now, my impression is that these constraints on assignments have sort of gotten looser in the modern era, but there is still old language. So uh, given the rise of syndicated lending to sovereigns in the current era, I'm wondering whether or not this is actually quite relevant when these loans blow up, as many of them are already blowing up. Uh, We've seen with Ghana and a number of other African countries that the syndicated loans, uh, they're coming into question uh, quite, uh, quite contemporaneously. Yeah, and as you say, the original documentation that's now coming back into focus um, have these prohibitions in them. And I would say that even um, arguably in in documents that are being drawn up now, you know, there may be modernization of language, um, but where precedents are used or or concepts are are reused, um, these prohibitions could continue to be there. There's there's nothing that would stop that from happening. Um, And I can see why they would continue to be used, um, particularly in the case of sovereign debt, where central banks 
are probably very keen to make sure that they know who's on the other side of the table from them and who is holding their debt. Um, and so I don't think anything has necessarily made these types of prohibition less attractive from the, the borrower side. And we could expect to continue seeing requests for these types of prohibitions just to make sure they've got comfort as to who could be buying up their debt. So one more question on this. I mean, at least watching the litigate, I mean, there's lots of litigation in the US context in the private credit markets over questions of assignments in, in the, at least in the non-sovereign context. But um, I, I was wondering if you might reflect uh, just briefly before, we also want to ask you about uh, ESG, which which goes in a different direction. But uh, before we wrap, but uh, this this matter of having experts under a foreign law come and testify, and your claims sort of being dependent on that, that just seems like the kind of risk that if I were giving my money to some hedge fund uh, to litigate old debts. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, of course, don't have that kind of money, uh, and I wish I did, but I'm not sure I would want to be dependent on some expert coming and telling me what Cuban or Venezuelan law is. I would, I would just want it to be a matter of English or New York law. Yeah, and I can understand why, um, but that is the challenge that that is there, I think, for anyone who's looking now at at enforcing these issues um, and to the extent there is uh, as you say interest in in getting other people to participate in that litigation you would potentially expect some level of due diligence on the on the viability of the claim to have been done um, ahead of you making that commitment we see that in other types of litigation sort of where the litigation funding market is growing um, in very different types of claims those funders uh, and the claimant law firms they work with will have done due diligence on, on the viability before agreeing to kind of enter into a funding agreement for that very reason. So I think um, we can call this maybe the, the bonus round because uh, the question I wanted to ask you has nothing at all to do with the Cuba litigation and we're nearing the end of our time, but we know that you do some work in relation to ESG lending. And that's a topic that Me Too and I have been thinking about uh, a good bit of late, um, especially in connection with the issuance of green bonds or so-called sustainability-linked bonds. And we've been thinking about those kinds of transactions um, more or less by looking at the contracts and the legal terms that are associated with them. And for green bonds in particular, we've been kind of puzzling through the fact that um, these are use of proceeds bonds where in principle, the proceeds of the loan or some comparable um, some some comparable amount of money uh, are going to be devoted to green activities, and yet the bonds are structured quite clearly so that the issuer is not actually making a promise to deploy proceeds in any particular way, and, and the, the documentation discloses that quite clearly. So 
we've been thinking about why the market is working the way it is, but also wondering about the full range of risks that the issuer of some of these ESG-related instruments has to think about. And so I'm hoping that since you advise uh, in connection with litigation-related risks in this market, you can tell us some of the kind of important things that issuers need to be thinking about in terms of managing litigation risk. As I say, total bonus question, nothing to do with Cuba, but we can't let you go without um, (laughs) capitalizing on your expertise here. No, sure. Um, Yes, ESG is very much a topic close to my heart. Um, And as I say, as as a litigator, I work with transactional colleagues all the time to help bring that angle to help um, clients manage their risks or think about their risks. Um, I mean, it's correct what you're saying in in terms of the approach to green bonds. It is a disclosure disclosure based approach. um, So the issuer will disclose its intention to apply proceeds to certain eligible projects, um, but it's not a term of the bonds um, and there isn't a contractual commitment in that regard. Um, And reasons that, for example, if a project that they intended to apply the proceeds to it falls over for reasons outside their control um, that structure means they have some flexibility to uh, perhaps apply the funds to a, a very similar project and um, without causing that to be an event of default ultimately in circumstances where actually the ability to continue paying principal and interest on the bonds is, is not impacted at all um, but I would of course add that they still have prospectus liability for you know, anything they say in that document um, so the prospectus does have to correctly represent the intentions of the issuer at the date of issue. And the issuer will be very mindful, I'm sure, of you know, reputational risks of using proceeds for something other than what was intended. Um, as you say, I mean, there's lots of things that they'll be thinking about at the moment. Um, issuers of green bonds or sustainability linked bonds or other products. Um, I think for my part, I'd say two key issues are disclosure and, and data. Um, they'll be need to be thinking about what information they have available um, about their ESG strategies, any transition plans um, that might be being developed, you know, how much of that information should go into a prospectus, um, bearing in mind often a lot of that information can be difficult to verify. It's often forward-looking. The science it's based on uh, is, is evolving. There is a need to use estimates. Um, so those are some of the challenges they're definitely thinking about. Um, and also there's a lot of legislation coming down the track in different jurisdictions, which they will need to grapple with. A lot of this is done on voluntary principles at the moment, but that may change. Um, there's a need to understand how those different regimes will fit into businesses that operate globally, how different definitions uh, will work. So for example, uh, different regimes may have different definitions of what is material in terms of disclosure. Um, So that's definitely an issue. And I would say for sustainability linked bonds, um, it's very much appreciated that there is a need to grapple with what are appropriate targets to set in connection with those. Um, and perhaps just as a concluding comment, given um, the context of sovereign debt that we're talking in, um, I'd flag that ICMA um, very recently published its voluntary process guidelines around SLBs um, with some updates in it to reflect the fact that actually sovereign issuers are showing interest in, in issuing that type of debt. Um, and so they have updated some of their language around um, the sustainability linked bonds. So, for example, explaining that for sovereign issuers, those those KPIs and targets should be material to their 
core sustainability policies um, and should address their relevant environmental, social or governance objectives um, that the sovereign has come up with. So, as I say, it's very much so an evolving space. There is more material coming out all the time um, and, and sort of best practice is, is a rolling frontier, I would say, that issuers are trying to keep um, up with. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. But I can't help but ask one more tiny question on uh, the in on the bonus round, which is just when we read these prospectuses, and I, I'll I'll speak for Mark as well, although he should he will feel free to disagree. When we read the prospectuses, we get the impression that really there there is no legal liability possible because they say uh, very loudly and clearly in multiple places uh, in these use of proceeds bonds that there's no event of default, there's no liability if we're not green, uh, you should not depend on us for uh, satisfying your green needs, blah, blah, blah. And of course, intentions, the, the intentions are very hard to figure out because Who's going to say, I, I, I never had the intention to do anything green. Uh, but it, nevertheless, is there a meaningful litigation risk? And do we see any litigation happening? I don't think we've seen any in the U.S. context, but I'm wondering whether in the European context there, there is real risk, despite all of these uh, disclaimers. And I think this is a, a very litigator's answer, but it, it will ultimately always come down to the individual facts of any particular situation. Um, and also, of course, different um, rights may exist under different legal frameworks. So um, English law will make provision for prospectus liability or other kinds of liability for disclosures. We have common law provisions, misrepresentation, things like that. Um, in connection with securities, we have other sort of statutory legislation as well, um, but it will very much depend on various criteria being satisfied for that to be a likely route. Um, so I think it, it is sort of difficult to assess in the abstract. Um, I mean, I would mention again you know, that the reputational risk side as well. Um, I think ESG is is recognised as an area that that has high reputational risk, and that that can of course also act as an incentive to make sure. Um, sort of issuers do what they say they would do. So that's probably the other point to bear in mind. Well, thank you so very, very much for giving you, uh, giving us your time. And I have no doubt that we will be asking you uh, to come back and talk to us more particularly on the ESG and if there are other syndicated loan assignment questions. But this, this has been a real treat. Thank you, Rebecca. Oh, you're Thank very you welcome. so much, Rebecca.